You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So I was on Mar the other night, real time with Bill Mar, Friday nights on HBO, and I would have given you all a heads up, but I didn't know I was going to be on Mar until the day I was on Mar. Montana's freshly reelected Democratic Senator, John Tester, couldn't make the show. Something about a government shutdown and a vote to reopen that government prevented John from getting on a plane. So at the last minute, Mar asked me to sub for a sitting U.S. Senator, something an openly gay man hasn't been asked to do since Idaho Senator Larry Craig retired. Now, most of you are going to need to pause the show and Google Larry Craig to get that joke. You go right ahead. I'll wait. Anyway, I was on Mar. And like every other time I've been on Mar, there was something I wanted to say that I didn't get to say because we ran out of time. If you saw the show, you might have noticed the moment I was spazzing out a little bit, letting Bill know there was one last thing I wanted to say. But he had to get to new rules, so I didn't get to say it. I'm going to say it now because it's say it out loud into a live mic now or keep blurting it out to every person I meet on the street. Anyway, we were talking about pot legalization because Michael Bloomberg, billionaire, former mayor of New York City and wannabe, second billionaire president of the United States, called legalizing pot, quote, perhaps the stupidest thing we've ever done. Bloomberg feels this way because he says 72,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2017. And it's true. 72,000 Americans did die of drug overdoses in 2017. That stat is from the CDC. But if you dig into those stats for a split fucking second, you will see that not a single one of those deaths, not one was marijuana related. Most of those deaths were due to opioid addiction, the opioid epidemic driven by big pharma and billionaires. Not one person died of a pot overdose in 2017. Now, a person can smoke too much pot, of course. But according to Dave Schmader, who wrote the book about pot, a person would have to smoke 1,500 pounds of pot to fatally overdose. Now, I'm no scientist. I don't work for the CDC, and I didn't write the book on pot like Schmader did. But I am pretty sure that by the time someone was on their third or fourth hundred pound of pot, They'd already be asleep or at Taco Bell or asleep at Taco Bell, and they wouldn't be able to plow through the next 1,200 pounds of pot that it would take to fatally overdose. Anyway, I spoke up for Washington State, on Mar, and Oregon, and Nevada, and Alaska, and California, and Vermont, and Massachusetts, and all the other states that have legalized recreational marijuana. The worst case scenarios have not come to pass. Teenagers aren't smoking more weed. Pot candies aren't somehow finding their way into the candy sacks of five-year-old trick-or-treaters on Halloween. Fewer people, particularly people of color, are getting sucked into the criminal justice system. Legalizing recreational weed is a big win. Hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenues pouring into state coffers that can be spent on things like schools and healthcare and roads. Anyway, here's what I wanted to say, and it kills me that I didn't get to say this on Mar, but the panel ran out of time. In states where we've legalized weed, recreational weed, politicians, mostly Democratic politicians, are moving to vacate convictions and dismiss charges for pot possession. As Jay Inslee, governor of Washington State, who also would like to be president, as Jay Inslee said earlier this month, we should not be punishing people for something that is no longer illegal. Employing that same logic, they're vacating pot possession convictions in San Francisco and Denver and New York City because we shouldn't be punishing people for something that is no longer illegal. 
But just as it's no longer illegal to possess pot, it's no longer illegal to deal pot, to sell pot. There are legal pot shops all over Seattle. It is now legal to possess large quantities of pot, no longer illegal. It's also now no longer illegal to deal pot, no longer illegal to grow pot. So if we're going to vacate charges and convictions for possessing small amounts of pot for personal use because it never should have been a crime in the first place, we should also be vacating convictions and dismissing charges for nonviolent offenses related to growing and dealing pot because those things should never have been crimes either and are no longer criminal now. So it's not just these misdemeanor marijuana charges and convictions that need to come off people's records, but felony marijuana charges and convictions for growing and selling. Oh, and all the people who had their assets seized under civil asset forfeiture laws or nonviolent pot crimes should be made whole. They should have their assets returned to them with interest. These politicians and states and cities and counties where they've legalized pot talk a lot about how pot laws, and they might want to talk to Michael Bloomberg about how this works, about how pot laws, possession laws, criminalizing marijuana disproportionately impacted communities of color. White kids could get away with things that kids of color could not, and that wasn't just on the possession front. Families and communities of color and otherwise were harmed by possession with intent to distribute charges and convictions, by marijuana sale and distribution charges and convictions, by marijuana cultivation charges and convictions, by hash and concentrates charges and convictions, by marijuana paraphernalia charges and convictions. And all of these people who were harmed by these things, by these laws, who were punished for growing and selling something that it is no longer illegal to grow and sell, they should be cleared too. Because like Jay Inslee said, going to say it again, we should not be punishing people for something that is no longer illegal. All right, coming up on today's show on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, you can subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show and no ads. Andrew Gerza from the Disability After Dark podcast is here to talk about dating when you have a disability. And on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, all that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 30-year-old pansexual female calling from Pacific Northwest. I'm in a polyamorous open relationship with a 38-year-old heterosexual male and have been exploring the lifestyle for the last few months. We recently joined FetLife and all it has to offer, but I've noticed recently that my partner has been friending a lot of 18 and 19-year-old women and it's been giving me a bit of the heebie-jeebs. I don't ever want to try and harsh his fetishes and I've been pretty accepting of everything up until this point, but I feel myself reaching a limit. I understand a huge majority of porn centers around fetishizing nubile young women and is a fantasy for a lot of men. However, knowing that my partner is seeking out that age range has really turned me off. Most women's brains aren't even fully developed until the age of 25, and when reflecting back on that time in my life, I just remember being really naive and was taken advantage of constantly. I'm also not trying to say that is every woman's experience, and I do believe that young women have a right to own their sexuality at any age. Am I being an asshole? Is this slut-shaming? It just creeps me out, and I don't want to feel less attracted to my partner because he has these desires. How do I get over this? Help! What do you say to your 38-year-old polyamorous partner about him pursuing 18- and 19-year-old women, adults, adults, on various dating apps? Well, I think you can say to him exactly what you said to me, and I'm with you. It's kind of creepy, and I think you can just put that out there, and you should... 
as his partner, particularly in an open polyamorous relationship, you want to know him. You want to know what he's thinking. You want to know what motivates him. And you also want to hold him accountable. And I think you have a right to go to him and say, you're 38 years old. Some of the women you're pursuing are 18 years old. It's easy to manipulate an 18-year-old. A lot of 18-year-olds don't know who they are yet, just like you said, frontal lobes, not fully formed. And they don't know exactly what they want yet, and they're therefore easily manipulated. And it's easy to convince an 18-year-old that what you want is what they want. And a lot of 18-year-olds are really excited about being desired and being seen as adults and will work really hard to please adults who give them a kind of adult attention. And so you should say to your partner, say to your boyfriend, what are you doing to control for all of that? What are you doing to make sure if you're going to get with an 18-year-old that you're honoring Dan Savage's campsite rule, even better condition than you found them, but you're also controlling for those dynamics, that you're not consciously or subconsciously or consciously manipulating this inexperienced, perhaps naive 18-year-old. And you should say to your partner, you have to set the bar higher for yourself. Okay, you want to fuck an 18-year-old? You need to make sure that she actually wants to fuck you and you need to make sure. You need to check and double check and not just get enthusiastic consent but get it 30 or 40 times and make sure that what she's agreeing to do is not just to please you, is not just an, to earn the uh, positive attentions of an adult or some sort of affirmation that two or three years down the line she's going to look back on that experience with you and hate you and feel used and not good about whatever it is that you two did. So the onus is on you as the older and more experienced partner to leave them in better shape than you found them, which is why you need to be more careful. You need to do more work if what you want is to be with somebody who's that much younger than you. And you know what? It kind of indicts you. If you want to be with somebody at 38, who is exactly 20 years younger than you are, yeah, that could be a problem and it could be a bad sign about the person you are, which is why I want to have this conversation. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And if you're going to do it, if you're going to pursue someone who's barely legal in the porn term used when they put people who are just 18 into pornography, what are you doing to make sure that you aren't doing damage? then you aren't going to leave someone in worse shape than you found them. Even if it takes them a couple of years to realize that that's what you did, what are you doing to make sure that that won't happen? And it could be that what you hear from your partner is, hey, I'm not actually going to get with any of these girls. They're just hot. And so I friended them or sent them a message, but I don't really want to have sex with an 18-year-old because one of the consequences of having sex with 18-year-olds is having to talk to 18-year-olds. He may just be enjoying the pics without any intention of following through with the dicks. But yeah, jump in there. Ask him what he's thinking. Ask him what he's doing. And maybe he hasn't given it a lot of thought. But you're going to be the prompt that forces him to give it some thought. And as a result of the convo that he's had with you, he may think again. He may decide that this isn't something that he wants to do. Or if he does want to do it and he meets an 18 or 19-year-old who does want to do it with him, perhaps he'll do it in a more thoughtful and careful way and therefore be less likely to consciously or subconsciously manipulate someone or to damage someone.
Hi, Dan. 33-year-old straight male. My girlfriend and I have been together for about two years now. She's 28. We're both young professionals, have a great relationship. I'm marrying her eventually after a nice, comfortable, long engagement, mostly as per your instructions. And problem being, she never initiates sex between us. I always have to be the one that actually starts things, even though she has complained in the past that I don't do it often enough. So I decided a couple months ago, I know it's a long fucking time, to see if she would actually get frozen out and make a move. It has been since late October since we had sex. Just wondering if you have any feedback. I've tried talking to her about it. We've discussed why she doesn't initiate things. She said it's because she likes me to. I'm stuck here. I have no idea how to push her past this tipping point to actually make her initiate sex because it's a big burden on me. And it's actually kind of overwhelming to be always the person that has to start shit. I'm calling to ask what planet you're on. Earth, last night. Because <laughs> I'm really curious on what planet the relationship described in your call counts as a great one. Really? Not, not to be rude, but you have this disconnect with your, you say, future spouse, someone you would like to marry down the road, uh, around initiation, around who's going to initiate sex. And you can't seem to talk about it, and so you just stopped initiating sex to try to force her hand or force her twat. And as a consequence, you guys aren't fucking. You haven't fucked since October. And that just doesn't sound like a great relationship. That sounds like an impasse. That sounds like two people who can't communicate about something that, at least in the context of most relationships, is hugely important. And hugely important, doubly so, doubly hugely important in the context of a committed monogamous relationship, and that is sex. And so you're not initiating to try to force her to initiate, and she's not initiating, so you guys aren't fucking, but you're also not talking, and... Ah. We have in the past. We've definitely talked about it in the past, like, probably half a dozen times over the course of the two years we've been together, mm -hmm. and it always kind of comes up in the same fashion, and mm -hmm. nothing really changes, and I don't know how to break past that. Okay, so the first question I want to ask you is, if this never changes, can you be content in this relationship? Is this the price of admission you're willing to pay? where you are always the initiator. Not ideal. If it can change, great. But but it's not ideal. So it's something you want to work on. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I want to get in front of, you know, some people are out there. I, I think often on sex and relationship shows, there is this bias. Sometimes I don't want to sound like an MRA activist, but a bias against the male caller, that the men are always the problem because we're the sex monsters. And so if there's a problem with sex and relationship, <laughs> it's us. Uh, and while that's often true, it's not always true. And it can be really tiring and, and emotionally sort of not shredding, ego shredding a little bit to always be the one who initiates, to never feel desired, right? Because you're always the actor and never acted upon. And, and women who have a problem with that, I hear from women who are always the initiator and they hate it. And it's a problem in their relationships. And I can understand why it'd be a problem in yours. Some people have a problem initiating though because they have terrible sexual hangups, and I'm wondering what kind of hang-ups your girlfriend has. And if you've talked about those, rather than talking about the symptom, the lack of initiating on her end, have you talked about the disease? Like, is there a huge sexual hang-up there? Was she raised in a really sex-negative or sex-phobic faith tradition? Was she slut-shamed viciously growing up and she feels detached from her own sense of desire or her own 
sense of entitlement to to desire and, and, and to wanting sex and therefore initiating sex. Have you had a deeper conversation with her about those issues? We have. And from what I can glean, it's that's definitely not the case because when we do have fantastic, like we're both relatively kinky, like it's mm-hmm. really, really good when it happens. It's just not happening enough. And when it happens, I'm always the one that flicks the first domino. It's not happening at all right now. It hasn't happened since October. It's almost February. It's been months. Ah, I would want to get her to a shrink and get you two to a couples counselor, possibly. Not to you know go into couples counseling for the rest of your lives. You can see a counselor just to have a mediated conversation about one issue. Just to make sure that there's no larger underlying issue that she's not sharing with you. If she's incapable of initiating because she struggles with shame around sex, some people with shame around sex have a hard time talking about the shame that they feel around sex. It's a little Aurora Burrosy. It's a little snake swallowing its own tail. But if someone's problem is feeling shut down because of slut shame or sexual shame or the religious tradition, which they were raised, um, sometimes they can't even admit it. They'll, they'll, they'll deny it, and it's just tied to the shame that's the underlying problem. But if that's not the problem, and, and the issue here is she just can't initiate, that, that, that something about her erotic imagination, her erotic inner life, something about the way her libido functions, for her to kick in, to gear, and start having sex or start experiencing desire, she needs to be acted on. She needs to be asked to the dance. That's the case for some women. Very well put. Some women... They, they call it reactive desire, that their desire to have sex kicks in when they are – when they perceive themselves to be desired and that's the necessary first step. And I think if that's the issue, if you see a couples counselor and you really you know nail it down that it's not shame, if she has reactive desire – and I would encourage you both to read Emily Nagasi's Come As You Are, which talks about this at great length. It's a terrific book. Um, if she has reactive desire, you may need to – Make a little game out of this where when you want to initiate sex, when you're feeling like you would like to have sex, there's a way you can do a partial initiation where you let her know that you're horny and you want her. And it's just a very gentle lobbing of the ball over the fence into her side of the court. And then she can respond with, you know, the Venus or Serena Williams return that you're still initiating, but your initiation is going to be subtle Perhaps some of the times, not all of the times, because there are going to be moments when you want to feel like the desired partner too. Yes. And so rather than you never making any moves, there are times you'll make a big move, but there may be times when you make a subtle move. And what you want from her at those times, and you're giving her something, what she wants is you always to initiate. You're giving her, you will always initiate. But what you want from her sometimes is you're going to make a very subtle and small initiation and you want her to to, to pick it up and run with it so that you feel like the desired partner too, or desired as well. Okay. I would definitely chat with her about that. That's a fantastic idea. If you can address it in a constructive way that allows her to be her and her desire and her libido to function the way it functions, but it allows you to get a certain need of your own met as well. God, maybe you two will start fucking again and then you'll be on a planet where I can recognize your relationship is a really great one. Or great in all the ways it's great that you didn't go into because you called me about the problem, of course, and not about what works. Very true. Good luck. Okay, everyone. Thank you very much, Dan. Sure thing. Bye. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a cisgender, hetero woman living in a major U.S. city 
in my late 20s. I am calling about my partner's close friendship with his ex-girlfriend. I am so happy in my relationship. We've been together for three years. We've just made the decision to get an apartment together. We're moving in this month. I feel very secure, safe, heard, well-satisfied in the bedroom. And I think the best part is both of us attend therapy regularly, and we've created this dynamic where it feels totally safe to talk about issues that bother us. And I feel confident that moving forward, we can handle the inevitable disagreements and problems that come up in any relationship, except I have started to become more in touch with some anger and some deep-seated insecurity through individual therapy that I did not know was there until we started making all of these plans to move in together. Um, These are all about his ex-girlfriend. So for more context, my partner has a large community of friends that he is extremely close with. Um, They're even like family. Um, He's closer to them than his actual biological family. And um, inside of this group is his ex. They were together for two and a half years. They lived together, but they did break up about nine years ago. So it's been a lot of time. They've dated other people in the past. She's single now, has been for a while. And he's with me. And I thought it was okay. I'm around her. She doesn't ever do anything wrong. He never gives me any reason to be suspicious of anything. Their behavior is totally cool, but it just bothers me on a fundamental level, I'm realizing. I feel like the triggering of her presence and her name just makes me feel like I'm not enough for my partner and like my feelings are not worth him potentially changing his dynamic in his friendship with her. I'm really conflicted because I feel like I have no ground to stand on to ask him to modify their friendship. Like maybe they don't hang out alone, but in groups, or maybe she doesn't come over unless he kind of asks me permission first so I can be ready for her presence. Are these things that I can do, or do I just need to like suck it up and be okay with this relationship? You went to therapy, good for you. You got in touch with feelings of anger and insecurity. Sometimes that happens. Now you need to speak with your therapist or speak with a better therapist. You don't have to stay with the same therapist forever and ever and ever. If you're with a therapist for a while and it's no longer working or working for you, you can move on. You can hire a new therapist. But you might want to start talking with a therapist, this one or some other one, who can help you take responsibility for your feelings, your feelings of anger and insecurity are legitimate, the demands that you're suddenly making after discovering these feelings of anger and insecurity, demands on your boyfriend, are not legitimate. They're not okay. And you know they're not okay. Because at the very end of your call, you ask me if you just have to suck this up and live with it. And the answer to that is, yes, 
yes, you need to suck this up and live with it. You shouldn't go to your boyfriend and say, after all of these years, after all of these years that we've been together, after all of these years where you've never done anything with your ex-girlfriend to make me have to worry about infidelity, emotional, sexual, or otherwise, I now need, because I'm suddenly in touch with my feelings of anger and insecurity, for you to carve this woman out of your life or box her in a certain way, compartmentalize her in a certain way because I'm feeling insecure. She is embedded in his family, his family of choice, his logical family, this large group of friends that you are now a part of yourself. And it has never been a problem. They went out. They broke up, what was it, nine years ago? They were together last time than you and he have been together. And it hasn't been a problem. Their relationship hasn't been a problem. And I really think, again, with your therapist, you might want to ask yourself, why now? Why are you making this a problem now? Maybe it's because the stakes feel higher. You've made a kind of commitment. You guys have moved in together. You have a lease together now. And maybe now that the stakes are higher, you've made a larger emotional investment in this man, a larger public investment in this man, the existence of the ex, the ex that he is friendly with, the ex who sometimes comes by the house when you're not there, seems more threatening because a breakup now, after you've made this larger public commitment, after you've moved in together, merged your finances perhaps, would be catastrophic in a way that it wouldn't have been catastrophic a year ago, two years ago. Therefore, this threat seems looms larger now. This ex-girlfriend that used to just be around and you didn't really perceive as a threat suddenly feels more like a threat. But what you need to understand is by making her an issue, by making your insecurities and anger some sort of force that you are helpless in the face of as opposed to something that you can take responsibility for – you are bringing about the crisis and perhaps the collapse, the catastrophe that you seem to have convinced yourself you can control for by having this woman dragged out of your house or dragged out of his life or making him self-conscious about his relationship with her in a way that you didn't used to make him self-conscious about his friendship with her. It all smacks of, well, self-sabotage. Also smacks of... You know, if we reverse the genders here, if you were a dude with a dick and your girlfriend of several years was, you know, had a large group of friends and one of the people in that large group of friends was an ex-boyfriend, it was never a problem. And suddenly now that you're in a committed relationship, you're making a problem of the ex-boyfriend in such a way that it could result in your girlfriend having to isolate herself from her friends, her support system. People would identify that as a red flag, not as proof that this man was an abuser, but as something that would need to be directly addressed to ensure that this man wasn't an abuser. And I want to say the same thing to you. You need to take responsibility for this and you need to address this to make sure that you are not engaged in abusive behaviors, that you are not yourself attempting to isolate your romantic partner in a way that is potentially, if not at this moment, not right away, but potentially abusive. So, you don't need to suck it up all on your own. We're all entitled to our insecurities. We all have insecurities. A lot of people are insecure about that thing that you throw out there, that phrase that you throw out there. I talk about it a lot. I'm surprised you used it without bringing up everything I've ever said about it. You say, she makes me worry that I'm not enough for him. You are not enough for him, girlfriend. No one person is enough for anyone else emotionally, socially, intimately, sexually, that doesn't mean everybody gets to have a non-monogamous relationship, but no one person can be all things to another person emotionally, socially, intimately, or sexually. 
And so you aren't allowed to say to someone, you're not allowed to do X, Y, Z because it makes me feel like I'm not enough for you. You just have to accept you're not enough for that person. And they may need to reach outside the relationship for some other stuff that they need, not sexually if you have a monogamous commitment, but socially, emotionally. You don't want someone who has you know, an emotional romantic attachment with someone that competes with your romantic attachment and, and destabilizes it. But you do want your partner to have friends, intimate friends that they can turn to for support. Sometimes for the support that you can't give them, sometimes for support about the relationship when you two are in conflict. And that can help shore up and strengthen your relationship. Our partners need people that they can vent to about how angry they are at us at times, just as we ourselves need those people in our lives. So just accept that you're not enough for him. And then you can have a conversation with him once you've accepted that about how to address your insecurities together. Like, Say to him, suddenly she was never a problem for me and, and now she is and maybe it's because the stakes are higher because we've moved in together and, and I'm just feeling insecure and I just need to be reassured. Not in the manipulative ways that you suggested where he needs your advance written permission before he lays eyes on her, has a conversation with her, but maybe just verbally every once in a while you need him just to let you know like – hey, we were not meant to be together, me and my ex. We're friends. A lot about our relationship worked, but, you know, things didn't work, which is why we aren't together. And things work for us, which is why we are. And just every once in a while, you can go to him and say, ah, feeling insecure about your ex-girlfriend coming to the party. And then it can become a ritual where he says, ah, nothing to feel insecure about. Remember, I broke up with her for X, Y, and Z. And I'm with you because of A, B, and C. And that may be all you need. It's just that little tagging of a base to address your insecurities. What you don't want to do and what you don't want a therapist to encourage you to do, I hope you don't have a shitty therapist, is weaponize your insecurities as an excuse to manipulate or control your romantic partner. You can take responsibility for your insecurities. You can ask your partner to be conscious of your insecurities and to offer you reassurance in a reasonable way. You aren't allowed to, and you shouldn't because it'll destroy your relationships. You shouldn't weaponize your insecurities in an attempt to control or isolate your partner. Hey, Dan. I am from Anchorage, Alaska. I'm about to turn 30. I am a pansexual. I'm happily married in a closed relationship, and I have a party that I'm throwing, and I wanted to know the etiquette on party drugs. I am a stay-at-home mom. I have many friends in that community, and almost everyone that I interact with on a daily basis has no idea the type of sexual person I am, as I don't know the type of sexual person they are. So here's the thing. I want to enter my 30s on Molly, and my best friend's coming over, my husband, her partner. It's going to be great. Other people will also be showing up something that I can't prevent, unfortunately. Do I offer them Molly beforehand? Or how can I say to them, I have this connect, but I don't want to roll with you. And I definitely am not inviting you to an orgy. Or do I just simply not tell anyone? And we're all just Rolling by ourselves. My default assumption when I'm invited to a birthday party is not orgy and Molly. Molly, of course, is MDMA, ecstasy, Molly, nickname. 
my expectation isn't I'm invited to somebody's 30th birthday party. I will be fucking that person at that party, as will everyone else, because it's a 30th birthday party. That's not my default assumption. There's a default assumption that you benefit from in this circumstance. You say you're pansexual. You say you're in a monogamous marriage. Well, most people's default assumption when they see a couple that is married is that they are monogamous. And that default assumption informs them of something, something relevant to your question. And that is, I don't get to fuck this person. This person is a committed monogamous relationship. Therefore, my being invited to their birthday party, even if they're on Molly, doesn't mean there's going to be an orgy because monogamous married people on Molly or not don't have orgies. I am having a really hard time understanding why this is a problem or, or no, how you made this into a problem for yourself. You really have two opportunities here. And I think you need to separate the rolling with your best friend and her husband and your husband from the birthday party. You are going to turn 30 on midnight the day before. You can be rolling that evening, the evening before you turn 30 with your friend and their husband or their partner and with your partner. And you can all get together at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. and take Molly and roll all night long and turn 30 rolling with your besties and a big cuddle puddle on your couch on Molly without having to host anyone else. And then you can have your 30th birthday party the next day. The next evening, the neighbors and the normies can come by and then you won't feel Emily posted into some sort of corner where because you're on Molly, you have to have a big bowl of it in the living room so everybody can have some Molly. That's not how... It has to work. It's not how it does work. You're making this a problem for yourself. You're engineering this in such a way that it is now a problem. And you just have to rejigger it so it isn't a problem. Roll the day before and turn 30 rolling with your besties. Then have a birthday party. Some people are a little down the day after they do Molly. So maybe the birthday party the next day will be your pick-me-up post-Molly. Or just postpone the Molly part of the celebration to another evening that isn't so high stakes. If you can't separate these things, get Mollied later. It's not worth it. You don't want to be rolling in a room full of people who aren't rolling, who may have expectations. There will be times when you are down for the count. You will not be able to be up on your feet being a functioning hostess and birthday party well-wish receiver when you're rolling. Have you rolled before? Have you done Molly before? This is not how it, you should do it. Don't do it this way. Molly party, just the four of you the night before or some other night. Birthday party, no Molly, no rolling. Separate these two events. And happy fucking birthday. Hi, Dan. I dated a girl for about five years. And in that time, she would send me the occasional nude picture, which I'm a big fan of. And uh, we broke up for about two years and we recently got back together. and Everything's going pretty good, but she has since got a phone provided to her by her work. It's an iPhone. And she's really hesitant about sending me any nude pictures anymore, which, uh, like I said, I think it's pretty cool to wake up to a booby picture before a long, hard day at work. And as far as I know, you can just uh, delete the pictures and then go into recently deleted and delete those and poof, they're gone unless you've got some kind of program or something or you're the fucking FBI. I don't know. But I can't imagine that her employer is going to go through that l link to pull up old pictures. 
Uh, and I'm, I would imagine that other people have been in this situation. How can I get my girlfriend to relax and send me titty pics? There's a reason they're the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We call them tech-savvy because it, it distinguishes them. It sets them apart from other people in this room with them. It sets them apart from me. I am tech unfucking savvy I'm a late adopter of everything. I don't know how to turn on the television in my own house. I have to ask the husband to come to the room and turn the TV on for me. I'm helpless. I didn't get a cell phone for years and years and years after everyone else had a cell phone. So I'm sitting here and, and, and siding with your girlfriend. Like, what if there's some sort of cloud that everybody with this work-issued phone, all of their documents and, and and photos and text messages and emails wind up on that cloud. Usually when you're given a work computer or a work phone, it is my understanding. I've never really had a corporate job. Everything you do with that phone belongs to your employer and your employer can go through your phone or go through your computer or go through your emails at will, which is why you have a work computer and a home computer. It's why occasionally you read stories about people being fired for using a company laptop, even on the road to look at or download some pornography. So your girlfriend, if she has the kind of corporate job where they're issuing phones, expensive iPhones to people and laptops to people, I think she's right to err on the side of caution here and not send you a good morning booby picture to get you the fuck out of bed. I don't think that's a reasonable demand. She could have a second phone. She could have her own little iPhone where she sends you occasional booby pictures, or if you guys spend some nights together every once in a while, maybe she could take some booby pictures using your phone and then hide them on your phone in some folder in your photographs. And then she can send you a note in the morning, letting you know to go look around because I left something for you. And you'll know that she means the phone and you'll know that there's a booby picture waiting there for you somewhere on your phone. If you can only fucking find it, you can make it a game. But no, I'm not going to order your girlfriend to loosen up and use her work phone to send you booby pictures. I think she's right to worry about losing her job if she's sending those photos out. I think she's right to worry about losing control of those photos. There could be somebody in IT at her company who manages everyone's phones and computers and the cloud. I don't understand how clouds work, but every once in a while you hear about somebody's photos winding up on some cloud and somebody else grabbing them. And she doesn't want that IT person looking at her boobs in the morning or showing her boobs in the morning to her boss and then being unemployed by evening. P.S. When I said she could get another iPhone just for private messages and sending booby pics, you could pay for that phone. If it's really this important to you, buy her a fucking second iPhone just for booby pics. The booby phone. It'd be like the bat phone, but for tits. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight woman living in a large city in the Midwest. Um, I'm looking to find some advice. Um, I've been dating this guy for on and off for about a year. We've just been seeing each other casually. Recently, he's expressed some of my desires and recording me while I give him head. To give you a little background, I've given him nudes through Snapchat and texting. And I've always done it where my head was either not in the photo or if my face was in the photo... Like I wasn't showing any nudity, just some cleavage or whatever. I don't feel pressured into sending this video or having him record me. I just am worried about the consequences of whether this gets out or not. I trust him. I don't think any he would send this to anybody or use this against being revenge porn. 
I'm just wondering if there should be, I don't know, if there's like a legal thing I can do or type of conversation I need to have with him. Even though I've talked to him about this, I just have some concerns before I oblige. I'm looking forward to the day when there are short video clips out there online circulating of basically each and every one of us sucking a dick so that no one can be destroyed professionally, politically, socially, emotionally by having their cocksucking video clip surface or leveraged against them by some vicious asshole ex. We are not yet there, unfortunately. Also, not all of us like to suck cock, unfortunately. Yeah, you've only been dating this guy for a year. People typically don't share nudes and video clips and sex messages with people they don't trust. And yet, we wind up having revenge porn being a thing that thankfully now is being legislated against and is now a crime in most states, the majority of states, because people out there have shared sexed messages, nude pics, short video clips of them sucking dick with someone they thought they could trust who it turned out in the end they couldn't trust that person. And that person put it online or sent it to family and friends and attempted to embarrass or humiliate their ex. And so, yeah, you're right to be wary. You trust him, but, and you've trusted him with nudes, but there's a difference between a tasteful or even a not so tasteful nude and a video clip of you sucking a cock and you're not comfortable sharing that with him. And you're right just to draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to let you videotape me sucking a dick. It's not that I don't trust you right now. I trust you right now. You've done nothing to make me feel like I can't, but I don't want that video clip out there. And you can make it not about him and not about some hypothetical future where you guys are bitter exes and he's an asshole and you're running for Senate and he pushes that video out there into the public. People lose control of their phones. People's computers get hacked. He could save this video clip. You two could part amicably two years from now. And this video clip could just rattle around on his computer in a file somewhere for years, just lay around and then he could have a vindictive, bitter future current girlfriend who finds this and is so angry about it and threatened by it that she puts it out there in the world or somebody gets on his computer. Somebody's working on his computer, finds his video files or is working on his phone, finds the video, sends it to himself and sends it off to some website. There's just a lot of ways that could get out there in the world that, then aren't his fault or something that he did wrong intentionally to hurt you. And so if you're not comfortable with that video, potentially, hypothetically, one day making it out into the world, don't shoot it. Because as we've seen again and again and again, that is a thing that can happen. And depending on your own individual circumstances, it's a thing that can be devastating. If you have a really religious family, if you are a high school English teacher, if you are a politician, with some hopes for national office, that that can be really devastating and you're going to want to be a little more cautious. So you called because you're not comfortable letting him make that video. That should have been the end of the conversation. Don't make that video. Hey, Dan, I'm a middle-aged person. And for more than five years, I've been with another middle-aged person, a man who I love very much. And he's one of the, the best people I've known. And the reason I'm calling is not because of a problem that we're having, but because of a problem that I see elsewhere. And that is the way that people constantly heap disdain and judgment on men with small penises. Um, 
it's really hurtful and you can't avoid it because you never know when it's going to crop up. You might be watching some comedy program and before you know it, all of a sudden some character just pops off with some casual, contemptuous remark about how terrible men with small penises are. And it's really hurtful. I don't know why people don't consider that the guy sitting next to you might have a small penis. Even that nice guy, because there's actually no correlation between penis size and whether a guy's a good guy or not. But there is a correlation between penis size and shame because of the way that our society talks about men with small penises. And my partner and I had to work through a bunch of shit when we first got together, not having actually to do with the size of his penis, but having to do with the whammy that was put on him by all the shame he was carrying around that people in society uh, have put on him for years and years. So I don't know if I have a question, really. I just wanted to get that off my chest um, because it's been really brutal for one of the people I love most in the world. You don't have a question for me, but I am really glad you called. And I want to second everything that you said. I get letters from people, from men. Not all men have penises, not all penises have men, but the people I get letters from about small penises tend to be male-identified people about having small penises and about feeling terrible. And the messaging the culture sends them and the derision that they come in for, that men with small penises come in for, and the way a small penis is used as a placeholder for, really for toxic masculinity. That you're running around Walmart open carrying and carrying that giant gun to compensate for having a small penis. People talk about the president having a small penis. People talk about small penises as if every shitty thing a man does in public is tied to, to, to that, to that, that desire to overcompensate. And you can just infer from someone's shitty, toxically male behavior in public that they must have a small penis. And that ain't so. That ain't true. I've known guys with small penises who were great guys and liberal and progressive and not open carrying and not the president of the fucking United States and some of them really good and bad. And yet it gets said and said and said and said and said. And if you object as a man, one of the things I loved about your call is that you were a woman making this call about your male partner. If you object to this kind of quote unquote humor mocking people for their bodies and you're a man, people will think that you're being defensive about your small penis. And so great is the shame that no one will stick up or push back against us because no guy wants people to think, even if it's a giant penis, that he might have a small penis, which is why he's objecting to this shit that gets thrown around. And it does damage. It does harm. It does real harm. I've been writing Savage Love for Almost 30 years and sometimes I pull up a column or someone references a column from 20 years ago and I don't remember it. I read the letter and I read my response and I don't remember reading that letter. I don't remember writing that response. Nine times out of 10, I agree with the advice I gave. Once in a while, I don't. But I remember a letter from 25 years ago that I actually didn't respond to because I did not know what to say and it was from a dad who was writing because his son who had a small penis felt so terrible that he was suicidal and the dad did not know how to address this issue with his son and wanted my advice and I did not know what to say. And I've thought about that letter once in a while over the years and thought about that dad and how I failed him and how I failed his son 
by not responding to that letter. And it's really stuck with me, the guilt about not responding to that letter because I did not know what I could possibly say that could undo the negative messaging and the shame, the word that you used, caller, the shame that had been heaped up on this boy's shoulder by shit like, I don't know, remember the group, don't want no small dick. Remember that song when that was on the radio and playing every goddamn gym in America and restaurants? And he had done this kid so much harm. He felt so inadequate. He felt no one would want him, that he couldn't possibly be desirable or a good sex partner because it all comes down to the dick. And anybody who's had sex for a while just knows that's not true. I don't have the study at my fingertips, but I've cited it before in columns, subsequent columns where I addressed this issue after failing to address it when that dad wrote me 25 years ago that show that people whose partners have smaller than average endowments report higher levels of sexual satisfaction than people whose partners are overly endowed. Now, some of the guys with giant dicks think that's all they need to do, maybe. They just show up with the giant dick and that ought to be enough. Isn't the big dick all you need? Isn't that the key to all great sex? And it ain't. And so maybe guys who aren't as endowed try harder and therefore do better and therefore are better at sex. Because they aren't just leaning on their dicks. They're using their fingers and their tongues and their toes and their forearms and their imaginations. And toys can also be put into play once you're no longer feeling shredded or insecure or, or just torn up by shame about your inadequacy. You're not inadequate because your dick is small. You're not adequate because your dick is big. You are good and loving and kind and compassionate and good at sex because you make an effort, because you care, because you try, not because you have a big dick or a small dick. Hi, I'm a 47-year-old cis female. I've been married for 20 years. My husband is not a dick bag. There is no abuse, treating alcoholism, or other big reasons people split. He's responsible, hardworking, and does his share around the house. We own our home, love our jobs, have two great kids and a dog. The American dream, right? The problem is we have absolutely nothing in common. We never really did, but it's gotten worse over the years. I do a lot of social activities with friends, and he always stays home. He doesn't say anything, but I know it bothers him. I was grown and changed, and he has remained stagnant. All he wants to do is watch TV. I take all of the shows he likes. He's gotten the kids to watch all the time, and it's all they talk about. I find it so unattractive. Frankly, I just don't like him that much anymore. I've been monogamous the entire time, and I believe we have been too. I did get caught sexting a few, a few years ago, but we worked through it, and things were better. I'm finding myself more and more attracted to other men, and I flirt all the time and still secretly sex with a few for fun. I even kissed two people recently and didn't feel bad about it. I don't think an open marriage would work, and honestly, I think I need to be away from his energy, which can be a little intense. We do not communicate well with each other, and I'm having a hard time broaching the subject. I can support myself with my work, but we'll have one in college soon. If I leave, I will be giving up the financial freedom we have as a team, as well as a house I love. My kids will be devastated, and my parents and siblings will likely resent me as they think he's perfect. By the way, we do still have regular sex, and it's good, so it's not that. It's more that he doesn't meet my social and emotional needs. I've been feeling this way for a good seven years at least. Here are my questions. Is it crazy to leave a marriage when there's nothing super wrong? Does everyone start to feel this way after so many years? Old relationship energy? 
If you do think we should separate, how do I approach it to keep it from getting ugly? We still need to co-parent. Do I tell him I want to separate right away or try to come to that solution together? I'm risking so much to go into the unknown and I don't know what to do. Should I stay or should I go? Earlier in the show, I was ranting about how it's unrealistic to expect one other person to meet all of your emotional, social, sexual needs. And that people have it in their heads that one person should be enough for them. And if you're not enough for them, that there's a problem. But it's a problem if your partner, if the person to whom you're married, meets none of your social or emotional needs. If you have to go outside the relationship for everything, except it seems sex, that could be a problem. Also a problem in relationships. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that this is often an indicator that a relationship is doomed, and that is contempt. And it sounds like you have a lot of contempt for your husband. He lets you go out. He lets you run around and hang out with other people. Not run around in a pejorative sense. Just he lets you be you while he stays at home. And like so many people now, it's not like your husband is staying at home and watching I Love Lucy reruns or Hee Haw or F Troop. Your husband is home watching a lot of TV in what everyone acknowledges as the second great golden age of television and watches shows with your kids and they discuss those shows and you feel cut out of those conversations because you don't like TV or you don't like the kind of TV that they like. And when you were talking about that, I could just, I could feel, I could see, I could hear the contempt dripping from your voice. And I'm wondering why you've attached so much emotional significance and weight to this way in which your husband is different from you. He likes shows you don't like. He doesn't force you to watch those shows. Your kids enjoy watching those shows and they have a connection about those shows and enjoy discussing them. And yet you frame all of that and talk about all of that as if it's evidence that your husband is awful or that your husband is conspiring somehow against you to turn your kids against you, to exclude you. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. You're out there doing the things that you enjoy your husband is at home doing something that he and many millions of other people enjoy right now, which is binge watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or whatever the show is that he's obsessed with at the moment and discussing those and enjoying those with your kids. If you like to go snowboarding and your kids like to go snowboarding and you didn't like to go snowboarding and they went snowboarding a lot and talked about it, would you feel the way you feel about the TV? Would you feel this way about it? Anyway, I'm not really answering your question. Can you exit a marriage that doesn't meet any of your social or emotional needs? Of course you can. You're free to go at any time. Will it be ugly? Will people attempt to assign blame? Perhaps. You know, people's sort of propensity for leaping in and taking sides in a divorce exists in direct proportion to how acrimonious that divorce is. If you and your husband can part amicably, even if you are the initiator of the divorce, if you can consciously decouple, as that saying goes, uh, in a loving way that acknowledges that no one really did anything wrong here. You grew apart. You haven't been cheating. He hasn't been doing anything wrong. He hasn't done anything wrong. You have become different people over time and may be better suited for other partners. You mo may both be happier with other partners. And you can have that conversation. And one of the things that sometimes shakes out when people have that kind of conversation about the end, they, they walk up to the precipice and then they pull back from the precipice and they renegotiate the terms of their relationship. 
it may be that in having a conversation about ending your marriage, you suddenly both see what's valuable about it or what you still enjoy or are able to connect with about each other at that moment when you're contemplating losing each other. So having a conversation about now that your kids are almost fully grown, going to college, about the next 20 or 30 years of your life and who you want to be with and where you want to be and what you want to be doing, the end result of that conversation could be an amicable divorce or the end result of that conversation could be adjusting your expectations and your demands and allowing for you, if you want to have sex with other people, to have sex with other people while remaining married, finding a new way to relate to each other. You know, sometimes people are disappointed in their partners, disappointed in their marriages because they've failed to live up to their expectations. And so people think I have to throw everything away. And in reality, some people have it within themselves to adjust their expectations and then find once they've adjusted their expectations and maybe built in some accommodations for going both ways for each other, that they're happy in the marriage again. But it was the conversation about ending the marriage and putting ending the marriage on the table that forced the conversation about remaking the marriage to save it and brought both people to a point where they could see why they still should be together and still want to be together. A near-death experience can really make you value the life you've got. Applies to marriages as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay man living in the Washington, D.C. area. So I recently just got accepted for a Ph.D. program, which would have me leave the D.C. area and move to a new city. And I'm wondering if that's the best thing to do, because one of the key things that I'm looking for is perhaps an area that's a little less gay. Uh, D.C. is like this monster city with so many people. And the thing is that uh, for my personal relationships, uh, I've never had one. And I believe that a key part of this is because I was born with a disability, specifically cerebral palsy. And so when I mention that to most guys, you know, the conversation just kind of evaporates. So at this point, I'm like, if I'm going to be somewhere for six years in a new city, you know, I was thinking if it's a little smaller, maybe people actually have to put some of the effort back in. And like I said, I don't know if, if that's a good uh, train of thought to have or not. Um, it seems reasonable. But whenever I mention that to people and I say, like, DC is too gay, I just get immediately laughed at. So if you have some thoughts, uh, that would be great. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, disability awareness consultant and cripple content creator, also the host of Disability After Dark and a queer man himself, Andrew Gerza. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? Hey, Dan, how you doing? Really well. Welcome back. Thanks for uh, joining me again on the show. So, Thanks for having me again. Uh, uh, my pleasure. Uh, and I follow you on Twitter. Everyone should be following you on Twitter. It's uh, at Andrew Gerza on Twitter. You do great work. So let's uh, get right to the meat of this particular question. Here's a guy, 32 years old, gay, living in D.C., tons of gay people. And it seems clear that he's trying to meet people on the apps, which are the new bars, right? That's where people go. That's where people hook up. A lot of queer bars have closed because everyone's on the apps. And the instant he mentions that he has a disability, that he has cerebral palsy, guys ghost on him. That sounds so familiar. Yep. I've been there. And I, when I listened to the call, I, I felt his frustration over that. It's all too common. Yeah. It, it's kind of common. The minute you disclose something personal about yourself, especially something where 
where our our queer male aesthetic is to be fit, able bodied, go to the gym mm-hmm. five times a week and be down be down to kind of be down to fuck whenever whenever. Um and when you present disability, our community's first thought is like, oh no, you all of that is not workable for you. And it's not just it's not just our community. You hear from disabled people who happen to be straight that they're also seen as not sexual beings, that they're often facing uh, similar forms of rejection. I mean, the wish is always that queer people would be more sensitive and aware of, of difference since they were different themselves, but that's not always the case. Yeah, exactly. Have you have you heard of the thing called the, the paradox of choice or the tyranny of choice? Because I think that's kind of where the caller is going. He's in a big city. There's tons of gay people. He's considering, after years of frustration, moving to a much smaller place with many fewer gay people in the hopes. I, I think the, the implication here is that if he's in a place where people have fewer choices and aren't so paralyzed by having so many choices. And it's not just that people have so many choices and they're such assholes are going to bounce from dick to dick to dick. It's like some people just can't pick. If you send somebody, studies have shown, if you send somebody into a supermarket and tell them to get mustard and there are 400 different kinds of mustard, they'll leave without getting a mustard. But if you send yeah. them into a place and there's three kinds of mustard, they'll pick someone, they'll pick one. And so maybe yeah. what he's trying to game here is that, you know, working around that tyranny of choice. Everybody has lots of choices in D.C., lots of choices in New York, lots of choices in Los Angeles. And so a lot of people don't pick and particularly for him, aren't picking him or giving him a, even a chance. But maybe if he moves to a place with fewer gay people, somebody will give him a chance. Somebody will go on a date with him. Someone will give him a moment to prove that he's not just his disability and that he's also smart and funny and attractive. Do you think that's a good strategy? I see where he's coming from, but I think that it's maybe a misstep. And I think he might want, and again, the call is very brief. We don't know much about this caller other than he has, and his kind of admission that he has CP comes right at the end. Mm-hmm. And there's really, really quickly going to throw it in there. I have a disability, I have CP, boom, and that's it. Um, my initial thought after listening to and I listened to the call two or three times was kind of own your disability weight be really upfront about it. Be, and I'm, I'm not saying that's always easy to do, but I, like like in my intro, my professional title is crippled content creator. My name on the apps is Big Big Crip. My, <laughs> like, I'm very abrasive with the fact that I'm a disabled person mm-hmm. and I'm not scared of that. And I think what I heard in his voice was he's afraid to admit that to people because they turn him down. It's never nice to be rejected that way. Believe me, I know firsthand it happens to me all the time. But I refuse to let that be a stopping point. And if you can't deal with the fact that I'm a big, big crip, then get the fuck out. Like, I don't have the time for that. So, so you're, you're doing the sorting hat thing that I like to talk about on the show a lot. You're putting that out there first. Guys who wouldn't be interested in seeing you because of that, you're, they don't waste your time. And you don't have to, you know, face rejection after engaging with them and swapping 100,000 texts with them as people often or DMs as people often yeah. do before meeting. And maybe what you're suggesting is just as the caller saved this relevant information for the very end and mentioned that he had cerebral palsy at the end of the call, that he might be doing that on the apps the dating apps too, not putting it in his profile, waiting a long time before mentioning that, and then getting kicked in the heart a lot by guys that he's engaged with, guys he thought he might have been forging a connection with who then disappear on him the moment he mentions that. So while we're strategizing about the tyranny of choice, should we also be should he also be strategizing or adopting your strategy of putting that out there first and being really blunt? I would just say yes, because it's more fun to do that. Quite frankly, you get to play with disability more. You get to turn that into 
something that you own and take agency over, which is a really powerful part of self-expression, I think, as a disabled person, being like, I'm disabled and I, I don't give, I have no fucks to give, and if you can't deal with it, bye. Like, I, and for me, that's a really, it's a good way of weeding people out, but it's also a good way for me to remind myself that this is a huge part of my identity. And I'm not saying this works for everybody, this may not work for the caller, but it is something that I have found to be a really fun selling point. Calling myself Big Dick Crip on the app is people have messaged me more being like, oh, really? Wow. Show me how big. Or, oh, really? Wow. Tell me about your disability. Or, you know, they want to know because I'm owning that and I'm playing with it and saying, this is something that we can play with together if you just would, you know, get past your unableism for a second. Now, what would you say to uh, someone who might be thinking, a disabled person out there listening who might be thinking, if I put that out there first, I'm going to attract people who fetishize my disability and I don't want to be intimate with someone who's fetishizing my disability? My answer to that is, has been one that I've kind of hung steadfast to for a few years now. I think that if you own fetishizing your disability a little bit, because no matter what you do, what you do you're going to find somebody who, whether they mean to or not, will fetishize your disability in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have to kind of lean into that a little bit and find out why people are doing that, what that means. And I think fetishism of disability can be positive until you take it to a place where you disable the disabled person more, where you make them less able to be themselves, then it's a problem. But if you want to, you know, play with the fact that I can't move a certain way or can't do a certain thing, why can't that be something we talk about? I think fetishizing disability in a positive way also allows for us to see disability as part of our sexual culture and as part of our sex. And so that's a that's a really interesting point. I mean, we kind of fetishize able-bodiedness. We just aren't aware that we're fetishizing it because it's just the dominant majoritarian preference or, or default setting or assumption about what it is yeah. and isn't attractive. The, the the trick can be though, and, and I sometimes say this to people who, you know, have called me who are amputees or you know are worried about dating, you know, some white guy who's only ever dated Asian women. Like, is it possible for someone to fetishize this aspect without objectifying you, without seeing you as only that thing? Have you? And I think if there, if someone can do that, if someone can straddle that line, there's something about you that you don't have any control over. That's just a fact about you. That there may be someone out there who's attracted to that thing, that thing, that objecty thing about you. But if they're also be able to see you as a three-dimensional human being uh, who's complicated and interesting uh, and uh, appreciate all of what you are, is it okay to date somebody who also fetishizes that thing? Have you been in that position? Have you had that sort of experience with someone who was fetishizing your disability but also didn't see you as an object? I put lovers in that position and said, if you're going to be with me, call me cripple. If you're going to be with me, call me this. If you're going to be with me, call me gimp. If you like, I will text lovers of mine and be like, was that the best gimp sex you've ever had? Like, I... <laughs> I'm not shy about playing with that. And I think you can be, you can fetishize somebody. I mean, look at the other side of devoteeism, which is a kind of a fetish around non-disabled people who love, who, who are attracted solely to disabled people. And I talked to somebody on my show a couple of years ago about it, who they're a devotee and they're non-disabled and they married a disabled man. And they said to me, I love him so much because he's disabled and I thought that's really cool because why can't that be your biggest, strongest, sexiest selling point? Why can't that be that? And it really opened my eyes to like, these people are not necessarily always like the creepy, leering, 
person trying to be trying to just fetishize the person. They're trying to navigate the fact that disability is attractive. And why can't that be, again, why can't it be a sexy selling point? So I think you totally can fetishize somebody in a positive way. And again, I, I say this consciously because I don't want people to think that I'm saying, yeah, I totally fetishize and be, but you can use disability as a sexy selling point. You can be attracted to that. And that's okay. Okay, important programming note here. Let's just drop this in. This is not permission for able-bodied people to start referring to disabled people as GIMP or initiate that kind of dirty talk that, that you appreciate. You have to let the disabled person signal and lead that. Don't jump in there with that. You might get punched, and rightly yeah, so. Yeah, don't jump in there with that unless like unless we're getting down. And I've said to you, call me this, then sure. Then you have, then you have permission. Otherwise... Don't go on the street and say, hey, cripple, what's up? Don't start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that should be obvious, but there's a lot of, like, dumb people in the world. There are some women who want to have their asses slapped and be called slut during sex. She'll let you know if that's something that you enjoy. That's yeah, not a move you exactly. bust out. The same thing yeah, with, like, yeah. fucking some, you know, having sex with a gay guy who wants to be called a faggot while you're fucking him. He'll let you know. You don't bust that move out. You got to. Yeah, don't. That's not your opener. That should never be your opener. Please don't let that be your opener. But <laughs> if, if I give you permission, you also should see that as a giant honor and a privilege. If I allow you to call me Gimp or call me Triple or call me, I have, I've been with lovers who call me like we have a, I have one lover and we joke around with certain other words that I can't think of right now. But like, um, if I give you that permission, it's a big fucking honor because it means that I have let you in and you to trust, a world that... Right, and there's yeah, trust there. It means that I've let you in and you should be fucking bowing down to me because I've let you in to a space that I don't let people into. And it's a, that's what vulnerability is right there. If I let you call me Gimp, it means I care about you okay let, let, let's get quickly back to the to the caller's particular circumstance all right so yeah. we can separate these issues out there's whether he stays in dc or whether he moves to this small town where there are you know maybe gay men have fewer choices and they might then choose him and scarcity might play to his benefit it, sound so sad when it, it does like sound that. so sad but that's what he's doing and and it's not just him that people have i've you know people on the show have talked about uh you know doing that like i've talked to just like Twinkie gay guys in LA are like, there's just so many gay guys here. And I moved to a small town and I had better luck finding someone. And for someone who's relationship minded at that stage of their life, who wants to settle down, you know, being in a place where there's just way too much, way too many choices can, you know, complicate your life. So there's that issue, like stay in DC with all the gay men or move to the small town and get, you know, if you want to get the PhD and they, you have a free ride at this place and you've been offered this uh, entree to this program, you might just want to do that for its own sake. But your advice, um, your advice, Andrew, whether he stays or goes would be to be more blunt and upfront. Yeah, just own it as you can like lean into the fact that you're disabled because that's not going to change. That's it's going to be a part of it. Like I, I would urge any disabled queer person to really start leaning into the fact that you're disabled and queer. We need more voices like you. We need more diversity within that sphere. We need people to really, really own that and be proud of it. And so I, I think that, and I also think for his, if he moves to a smaller town, he might. I don't know the level of his disability, but he might experience less accessibility options. Mm -hmm. So that is also something to consider. He may, there may not be special transit. There may not be elevators everywhere. There may not be those kind of things. There may be less resources for him in a smaller town. Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant slash cripple content creator, also host of the terrific Disability After Dark podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me again, Dan.
Hi, Dan and you, and Nancy. Dan, this may not be a question for you as a non-pussy enthusiast, but I'm betting that someone you know or your listeners can help me out with this one. I'm a 39-year-old bisexual cis woman, and I'm in my first relationship with a woman. Before her, I hadn't been with a woman in 20 years, and the experiences I did have were only a few hookups in my late teens. I've been with this woman, who is a lesbian, for about three months now, and everything including the sex is amazing. I'm mostly over the low sexual self-confidence I had at the beginning because of my inexperience with women. I have one problem, though. She lubricates profusely every time we make out, like way more than I ever, ever have. It tastes delicious and healthy, but there is just so, so much thick-ish kind of stringy lubrication that sometimes it makes me gag when I'm first getting started. The last thing I want to do is make her self-conscious about it or make it seem like I don't love her amazing yummy pussy. But every time, I just feel like wiping a bunch of it away before I dive in. Is eating pussy this juicy something that gets easier with practice? And is there some move I can make to make it easier on myself? Any tips or tricks? And would it be as terrible as I think to just keep a washcloth by the bed and wipe some of it away before I eat that beautiful girl out? You're right. I don't eat a lot of pussy myself. Not a fan. But it seems to me that you should be able to say to someone who produces a lot of lubrication naturally and because you arouse them very much and you take that for the compliment that it is that you want to eat their pussy but you don't want to drown and you should be able to wipe a little bit of that away as you dive in and make more of it and then wipe a little bit of that away. It seems to me that three months in, even earlier than that, you should have, could have, would have had a conversation with your girlfriend about – the logistics of the way her body works, which is not to shame her for the way her body works. You're not saying there's anything wrong with the fact that she's someone who produces a lot of lubrication when she's aroused. It just presents a little bit of a challenge for the person who's down there between her legs gobbling her pussy up. You want to eat her pussy and you're being washed away by the storm. Yeah, get a nice cozy washcloth, something that's not at all scratchy and have it by the bed and Wipe and go and wipe and go and wipe and go. And I can't imagine that your girlfriend would take issue with that. She is, after all, getting her pussy eaten. Hello, Dan. It's a gay man from the Midwest. Kind of a silly question. What is the best way of getting cum out of your walls? You wipe it off. That doesn't mean there won't be a stain. There won't be a mark. Occasionally, you will have to repaint your bedroom walls or paint them with something else. If it's a real problem, you can do low lights. You can also strategically point that dick somewhere where the cum isn't going to hit the wall, like point it at your soft palate. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's look at some of your Savage Lovecast tweets. Emily tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, I am a first-time candidate in a local race this spring. Could you remind your listeners to also vote in their municipal elections? Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Of course I can, but I don't have to, Emily, because I read your tweet and you reminded them. Another Emily, Emily Glodzik tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, have you heard of the new British show Sex Education on Netflix? It is hilarious and at times quite poignant as well. Hope to hear your thoughts on the hashtag Savage Lovecast. I checked out a couple of episodes. It is hilarious. Jillian Anderson is great. But as with so many shows set in high schools, I have such a problem watching 25 and 35 and 45-year-olds playing 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds. I kind of bump on it, as they say in Los Angeles. But I am enjoying the show and its sexual politics and its sexual bluntness and its graphicness. 
All that pretty amazing, pretty groundbreaking. Good show. Check it out on Netflix. And the Australian centrist tweets, in response to the girl whose partner wants to change her tampon, I was in a relationship like that 10 years ago, and the reason was codependence. We were needy and wanted to share everything and not keep anything to ourselves. Poor boundaries. Hashtag regret. Don't think that one needs any comment from me. Finally, Kevin Pellrine tweets, I wonder how many hashtag Savage Lovecast listeners have ever actually played Yahtzee. Yahtzee. I use that as an expression sometime. It means you win. Yahtzee. Uh, maybe I'm dating myself as a Gen Xer slash boomer from way back in the day, but Yahtzee is a game people play. Do people still play Yahtzee? If, you don't know, if you're not familiar with Yahtzee, you can Google Yahtzee just like you Googled earlier in the show. Larry Craig. All right, if you want me to read your tweets about the Lovecast on the Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLovecast when you tweet about the show. And now, some response calls. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in response to the father whose 14-year-old daughter was caught using his wife's toys. Now, um, you can have a really awkward conversation with her about her needing her own sex toys, which is fine. Or you can do what happened to me. I'm an old pro. I'm 30 years old. I've been masturbating since I was 12, so it was uh, the year 2000. Um, my mom would get like those little massagers that are in the checkout part of the cashier area. You know, you're standing in line, you're about to check out. There's like dollar bin stuff there, there's gum, there's whatever. And there's these little back massagers. I didn't use them for my back. I, I use them for other things and that you can casually be like, oh, hey, I got an electric massager for your back and your shoulders. Uh, here you go, kid. Knock yourself out. De-stress. And you know what she's going to use that for? Exactly. You live, you learn. So that's what I do. And then I'd put your, your wife's sex toys in a place that has a lock and key. This is for the caller in episode 639 with a shriveled nutsack of a new boyfriend who can't tell her the truth about why he wants to help her with her tampon. You don't say how old you are and you don't say how old he is. This might be excusable if he was maybe a teenager or maybe in his very early 20s. But if you've been listening to the Lovecast for 10 years, you're probably in your mid to late 20s at least. And I'm here to tell you, dump this guy when people tell you who they are, listen, this guy is telling you he's either A, a coward, or B, a manipulative shit, or maybe both. You should just be able to ask for what you want. And this, he's pulling the shit that dudes have been pulling for millennia on women. Oh, it, it'll bring us closer together. Tell him to go change his own tampon. <laughs> Hi, um, this is a comment in response to the lady on episode 639 whose boyfriend um, was interested in getting closer with her by um, taking out her tampon. The whole time I'm listening to that, I'm saying, no, it's an absolute fetish. Not a super common one, but one that I am very familiar with. I have been friends um, over a year with a guy online, and we met talking about different kinks, and I've always been very comfortable with my period, and it's kind of a deal breaker for me if a guy won't have sex with me on my period. But anyway... Um, he slowly opened up to me about his different kinks, and one of them was being really into me when I'm on my period, um, playing with myself, sending him videos, pictures, state of my underwear, my tampon, anything like that. Um, 
And I must say that not only has it made me feel more confident in myself, because ordinarily women are made to feel like they're not incredibly sexy or attractive or wanted when they're on their period and going through something like that. So to have somebody kind of fetishize that aspect of my life was really hot and a big turn on for me. And it's actually become one of my kinks. So my advice, if you're open to it, is let him live this out. I think it's really healthy and fun and it can be a lot of fun for you. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The 2019 Hump Film Festival Tour begins this week. The first few stops for my Dirty Movie Film Festival are Albuquerque, Palm Springs, Bellingham, and Los Angeles. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets and find out when Hump is coming to Hump, a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Adam Gerza on Twitter at Dis After Dark Pod. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.